All right. Let's uh, open our Bibles once again to Jeremiah chapter 18. here last week, uh, you'll know that we, we took a stab at sort of exploring some of the implications of, quite truthfully, like the first six verses or so of uh, chapter 18. And the theme before us was uh, sort of this idea of the potter and the clay. Um, it's cool to hear that sort of refrain echoed in some of our uh, music this morning as well, right? And, and so this is a fairly well-known sort of metaphor, if you will. Um, God puts himself firmly in the position of the potter. He clearly positions in the particular, uh, the exact application of this portion in the immediate is Israel is the clay and he's speaking to them as a nation and he's discussing with them sort of his purpose and plan for them and how his intent was to shape them and form them as a people that through his election of them and through the sovereign choice that he had made that through them the light of the truth would be shown to all nations. It was never really designed to be an insular thing. It was designed to be, very truthfully, like a way for God to reveal himself to the world. And so on the immediate, we could see that in the sort of exposition of Jeremiah that he's speaking to a nation, he's a prophet to the nation. The metaphor would certainly speak to them nationally. Um, But it's also true that it's applicable on a personal basis, that truly God has um, chosen, he Uh, has brought us into his kingdom. We're a part of his people uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, we're in his hand. And now he's forming and shaping us also individually. God is bringing to pass that which he envisioned and purposed for us uh, when he brought us into his family through Jesus. And last week, we spent the majority of the time making an effort to just think about some of the nuances of what was put before us. Particularly this idea that in verse 4 of chapter 18, it tells us that as the potter was working at his wheel, the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in his hand, and yet he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for him to do. And we kind of talked about this idea that, you know, in a culture that highly values the disposable, it's easy to think of the first vessel as essentially being ruined and useless, And as God was shaping it, something within the clay itself was defective, couldn't hold its shape. It started to fall apart. And, you know, implicitly, I'll be honest, when I read that, I usually think, well, the first design was surely the best. And God had a sort of a backup plan that he, you know, sort of made into this other lesser valuable object. Um, Doesn't exactly say that, although we may infer that when we read it. Doesn't exactly say that the first vessel was superior to the second. It just means that the scope or design, the purpose for it, the function of it, uh, whatever he was intending to make at that time, it couldn't be that thing. So he shaped it into something else that was still ultimately good and useful. And so I wanted to, last week, spend as much time as possible just thinking about and exploring the idea that God has us in his hand. And we sang it again this morning, some of those great classic references, for example, Romans 8, 28, right? He works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes and who love God. 
how can that be true? How can God make all things work together for good? He said all things. We limit the all with an, an, like sort of a human sort of bracket. And we're like, well, can't certainly mean all things. God cannot possibly work all things to the good. Because surely some of my own failings, my sin, my shortcomings cannot possibly be woven into something good in the end. And so we have a hard time, maybe not we, I'll rephrase. I have a hard time at times believing that truly God can work all things to the good. I struggle to believe that sometimes, mainly because I, the longer I try to walk with the Lord, and I guess the longer I get to know myself, I see how, fall, how, how, how far short I still fall often. And I'm like, how can God still work these things to the good? I can reflect on when I first became a follower of Jesus. Uh, I was about 12, 13 years old. And the wonder of being accepted was so awesome and just so, like, you know, I can still recall almost like a, like a sensory way, like smell it, touch it, taste it. Like, I just remember what it felt like in that moment to realize that I was accepted before God through Christ and that my debt of my sin was paid. And there was this wonder of, I'm a part of his family. He's forgiven me. I'm accepted. And I didn't struggle with it in that moment. The reality of the gospel was so clear. I was like, yes, thank you, Lord. And then over time, and I don't know if this is just the result of most people's journeys or maybe just my own, but it just feels like the further along I get, it feels like the grace of God must surely be getting exhausted to a degree, right? Like, yeah, he accepted me on day one, but surely he intended me to be a much better Christian by your, and I'll give away my age, uh, like 28 years later, uh, should be a much better Christian now. And I'm not saying the goal isn't to be a more mature Christian day by day. And we're going to explore that this morning. But I'm bringing this up because there was a few, and, and, I can, and I can understand this, and I'm sort of just riffing on this idea, but there was a few folks that chatted with me after last week's service and said, hey, I'm a little concerned about the nature of the message because you inferred that God would never leave you or forsake you. And they're like, he will never do that? So regardless of how good or bad I am, regardless of how sinful I am or how wretched I am, God will never leave me. Aren't you implicitly creating a dynamic where you're basically telling people your actions have no bearing on your relationship with the Lord. So why would you preach a message of holiness? Why would you preach a message of repentance? If God's going to accept you, he's going to hold you in his hand. If you're never going to be forsaken, then aren't you sort of opening the door to just let people live quite literally however they want? I don't know, maybe nobody else in the room heard that or thought that or considered that but a few folks did, and I, and I value that input, and I value that perspective, and I could see how you may conclude that, that when you preach the radical grace of God, you leave yourself open to a drastic misinterpretation. People can interpret the radical grace and the exceeding abundant grace of God as license to sin. That is absolutely true. But the fundamental issue is this, and this is what I'm going to put before us this morning as we explore sort of the follow-up to the greatness of God and the grace that is displayed in the fact that though the clay was spoiled, he reshaped it, is the grace of God does not actually incite sinfulness. It provokes holiness because the tendency that we have is a tendency towards self-righteousness and legalism. We say, oh, I've been saved by grace. I know I can never build the bridge to heaven, and we understand the gospel message that only Jesus could bridge it. And so we're like, yes, I acknowledge that. Once we get across the bridge, we start to put a little too much focus on the self. Now I've got to take it from here. 
And if you're a Bible student who's been reading through the New Testament, perhaps you've read the book of Galatians because the entire book was written to address that fundamental issue. People came into the faith by grace, and then they're like, now I'm going to perfect that which God has begun through leaning into my own effort, energy, rules, and all these other kind of religious sort of structures to get myself to the finish line. And Paul actually comes in and he uh, strongly, strongly redirects them. He's like, you're being foolish. That which has begun in grace will only be sustained by grace, and it'll be grace that's exalted in our final glorification in the heavens. When we get before the Lord's throne, we're not going to hold on to a couple crowns and say, yeah, yeah, I earned these ones. <laughs> all of them fall at his feet. All of them are cast down before him because all of them were ultimately accomplished by him, for him, and through him. And we'll see that most clearly in heaven. And so the, the necessity of seeing the order of chapter 18 is so important. It begins with the vessel being shaped by a potter. And my attempts last week to, to show us the goodness of the one whose hand is on the clay. He's a good God. Do you believe this morning that God is good? As revealed in scripture. Do you believe this morning that God can actually work all things together for good in your life specifically? It's easy to believe it for your neighbor. It's hard to believe it for yourself sometimes. Do you believe that God can actually truly work your life to the ultimate good that he intended it to be? Perhaps you need a boost of faith, and so I would encourage you to feed upon God's word and harvest the promises that he's left there for you to strengthen you. If we see then that God is willing and capable of reworking, we see then even in the nation of Israel's history the fulfillment of these truths. God does come to his people. He is ultimately through his son Jesus rejected by his own. He then steps back and he opens the door, so to speak, to the whole world, and ultimately we see, it was a reference in our time of prayer this morning in Romans, that God will restore ultimately and fulfill every promise he made to the nation of Israel. He will fulfill his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. The interesting thing is there's a long period of time where the promise was made and the promise was fulfilled. And the children of Israel suffered a lot of consequences for their choices. So a couple of things I want to address. One, when we talk about the hope of ultimate uh, glorification that God has begun a good work. He'll be faithful to complete it. That is not to be misinterpreted that there are no consequences for your choices. There's still consequences. Just doesn't mean that you've nullified your standing with the Lord. For example, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. At what point in the story did the son ever stop becoming the son? Is there any part in the story where he was like, I'm no longer a son. I'm no longer relationally connected to my father. There's never a point. My kids are my kids. I may embarrass them royally many times. Sort of my job. I may disappoint them. It may work the other way around. They may do things that I think are regrettable. And yet they're never not my children. I'm never not their dad. There's always a relational connection regardless of behavior. You'll take the issue of the children of Israel. They're just, they're God's people. They just are. And that relationship is never broken. The vessel is never anything other than the vessel. The potter is always the potter. Relationally, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're in Christ Jesus. If you're one of his children, you're one of his children. You may make really bad choices as one of his children, and we'll explore that. But you're never not one of his kids. 
The fundamental issue here is that the potter's hand was upon the clay. It tells us in verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. You're in his hand. This should evoke in your thinking John chapter 10, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, and he's discussing um, and, de and describing the relationship that he has with his sheep, and then he discusses the fact and he declares that those whom his father has given them, he holds in his hand and nothing can pluck them out of it. Don't underestimate the great sovereign power of God. And don't allow yourself to start to implicitly limit the grace of God for yourself as you root your truth that is pressed before you with the reality of the life that you're living. And we can begin to start to struggle with this idea of like, well, surely the grace of God is worn thin. Surely I must be at the very precipice of the exhausting point of grace. And surely God will discard me completely and be done with me because my life is pretty jacked up. And I was attempting to address that last week and to fill us with not just an empty platitude, like an emotional hope, like let's all feel better because we came to church. It was rooted in a message of hope for the people of God, that there is truly grace that abounds beyond sin. Sin abounds. Grace much more abounds. It's super abounding. The, the child of God is always a repentant moment away from being entering back into right relationship. Doesn't mean you're going to snap your fingers and whatever consequences of your choices are gone. You may have to bear up under the consequences for the rest of your life. But the relationship can be restored. You're not disposed and God is not done with you. That's the God that we serve. He's a God of grace. And it's to the glory of his grace that we will ultimately kneel and bow before him. And so this morning then, if we see this truth first and we are allowing ourselves to feed upon this truth in our soul, then the remaining verses that we'll look at become a natural reaction to this first reality. First, the greatness of God. First, the potter. First, an acknowledgement that we're in his hand. He's sovereignly in charge. He's graciously working things to the good in your life and mine. But there is a reaction to, or if you will, a responsibility that we bear in this relationship. We're not fundamentally clay, although we theoretically were made out of it. In Genesis, the idea is we have a brain, we do think, we're soulful beings, we have a will, we do decide, we choose, we can obey or disobey. Clearly, the context of Jeremiah brings this to bear. He was responding to and was raised up because they were a rebellious people, that infers choice. And so, first the, the potter, and now the reaction or sort of the consequence of that in our lives. Look at verse 7 with me. We'll read through on down to verse 10. And so it says, If at any time, and this is God speaking, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Verse 9, and if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Think with me. The prophet standing before people 
remember from last week, it's been 460 years of history. They're at the very end. They're about to go into captivity. Jeremiah is sort of like that last warning, if you will, before they enter into really the chastisement, the punishment, uh, the discipline of God. It's not the intent. God did not desire to have to use this means of correction. He's unchangeable. God is unchangeable. But he has sovereignly created a way in which he puts before us the unchangeable reaction of God to the choices and the changeability of humans. When we choose to do evil and to rebel and to pursue disobedience, God unchangeably responds to those choices in a very clear way according to his word. And when we are broken and humble and of a contrite spirit, and when we are aware of our sinfulness and our depravity, and we come before God with humility, seeking his forgiveness, he unchangeably and unbreakable consistency, faithfully every single time, receives those who come to him with a broken and a contrite spirit. There is never a moment where those who come broken and laden with their sin and the ruin of their life come before God and find rejection. Our father is always home. We may be a prodigal who's a thousand miles away, bankrupting our life, but when we have a turn of heart and we come before his throne of grace, he's home. The door is open and he responds with compassion and mercy. And yet the hard-hearted, those who are unwilling to bend the knee, will most certainly face the exact thing that God has said repeatedly in his word. That those who come proud, self-righteously, stubborn, unwilling to bend the knee, unwilling to yield their life before the sovereignty of the Lord, will find not his, his acceptance or his compassion, they will, they will find him in a position of judgment. That is the truth of his word. And so God brings this out and he puts it before the people of Israel very plainly. And look, if you've parented, this is exactly what happens every day, all the time. Please stop or. Please do this or. And you're putting before your kids constantly the choices if you don't, then, if you do, then, and they get to kind of sort of feel their way through it. If they consistently disobey, they probably find a consequence. If they willfully, perhaps not happily, but maybe they've figured out how to navigate towards the ultimate goal that they have. So like if I say nothing, and though I resent this obligation deeply in my heart, if I say nothing and just do it with my head down, probably will be much better for me than if I fight or complain or, you know, sass, or I can continue to go on about all these parenting experiences. Um, it's not always bad. It's sometimes really good. And <clears throat> the point being, this is, this is often what happens in a, a, a normal life, right? This is very, this is very typical. I'm just using a an easy reference for myself because I'm living in that world. And this is how it is with the Lord, and this is what he puts before him. And so I step back from this, and I guess what I see is two simple parts to this message. Last week was really what God is working in. Right? God's working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's crafting a vessel of honor for his glory and purpose in each and every one of us. 
God's at work in your heart. If you're seeking him sincerely and honestly, God's at work in your heart. You may experience conviction throughout the week. Conviction's a simple idea. You do something that's actually wrong and you feel guilty about it. That's conviction. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, sensing that you have erred and strayed from the, from the direction that God would have for you. And when you feel that, when you sense that in your spirit, that's the work of God convicting you. The simple and most immediate thing you can do is stop right there and respond with a humble prayer of repentance and a change of direction. That's the work of God. Now, remember, last week we talked about the fact that the, Jeremiah comes down to the potter's house and the clay is on the wheel. And I, I tried to do a really interesting, like, I tried to, like, paint a picture of what pottery making is like. I'm not a potter. I have no idea. I just read some stuff on the Internet. But the bottom line is there's clay that, on this wheel, and the wheel spins around. And I was trying to draw a connection to the idea that it's a pretty mundane reality. The clay is literally going nowhere. It's sitting on the wheel, spinning around over and over and over and over again. And the reality is, for most of our Christian experience, we may have some exceptional moments where we feel extraordinarily near to God, or we have these dynamic moments where God works in a really significant way in our heart or life. It could be a conference, could be a church experience, could be whatever. But the truth is, those are probably going to be outlying experiences. The majority of your Christian formation in Jesus is going to take place on the normal reality of everyday life. The routine that you have, the structure of work, school, family, whatever your commitments are, that's, that's normal living. And God's not absent in those moments. He's present and he's forming and shaping you. It's just a lot more subtle because it may not be as pronounced as the highlight moment, right? We're, we're accustomed to, to experiencing the reality of the world through highlights and sensationalism. The news is sensational. The sports, it's only the highlights. Don't watch the whole game. Here's the five most important moments. But life isn't like that. Life is every day. You wake up, it's pretty unglorious. You get old, you wake up, you don't feel great. You have a sore back. You're like, ah, and you groan when you get out of bed. And some of you are like, I didn't even go to bed. I'm on a 36 straight hour study binge. But... Like the truth is, those are not the moments to be downplayed. Those are the exact moments where God's working in you very slowly, very subtly, very, very gently, if you will, and he's bringing something to bear. He's forming Christ in your character. And so that's the, what I'm talking about is the dailiness of your life. You could have a thought that you have just been allowing to just fester in your head. You've been thinking things that you really shouldn't be. You're not even acting in any way that's wrong but you're allowing your thought life to live in a place that's really unhealthy. It's not honoring to the Lord. It's feeding negativity, negative experience, emotion. It's feeding all sorts of uh, just ungodly thoughts. It's creating attitude towards somebody or a circumstance or a situation. Take every thought captive. That's the work of the Lord on a daily basis. He's carving out the junk. You get convicted. Man, you suddenly realize, like, I have a greed problem. And you're like, like I, I'm not a generous person. And you have this realization. That's God working in the daily. You might have that on a Tuesday afternoon, just at your desk or at your library or with a friend, and you just have this moment. Like, that's God working in the dailiness of life. It could be ultimately through those daily experiences of interaction and community where you realize you're an irritable person. You're not patient. You're quick to anger, not slow to anger. Your words are harsh, not gentle or kind or uplifting. And you don't experience that unless you're with some people long enough to have that reflected back to you. And then you realize, wow, I've got work to do. 
That's the divine work of God. He's bringing that to bear. That's the Holy Spirit convicting so that Christ might be more fully formed in you. So don't downplay those things. Don't ignore those. And I would caution you not to seek sensational experiences as a way to meet or reach the ends of being more formed into Christ. People will spend, and I've seen this in the Christian community, they'll be chasing experiences through conferences and moments, looking for these moments that will transform their life. And then Monday through Friday, on the dailiness of it all, there's no, there's no angling in and leaning in and purposing to be connected to Jesus. They're not walking with God. They're looking for an easier way out, which is God's going to fix me in this two-hour session, and I'm never going to have these problems ever again. It's just, I mean, you might have those experiences, like, cool, God bless, but I think for the majority, the whole, that's not really how Christ works in us. And he brings things to bear slowly over time, and he shapes, and he shapes, and he shapes. So God's working in you. Now, the idea of God working in should immediately trigger to you a very famous passage in the New Testament. So let's go there, and, and does anybody know the reference? Philippians 2, close, Bible quiz. Are you asking me to get the verse number? Or verse number, verse number, keep going. He's going to be there. He's going he's gonna to recite the entire, from chapter 1 all the way through, he hits the right verse. All right. It's Philippians 2.12. Let's go to Philippians 2. You were so close. I know it was on the tip of your tongue. Philippians 2.12. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Yeah, Philippians 2.12. Out, uh, out of respect for Mackenzie, I always say every time I hear the Bible pages turning, I'm like, I, mean, I love to hear Bible pages turning. And I know that that makes me old and irrelevant, but I'll tell you, the digital Bible you don't hear the rustle. Like, you don't have the feel of the paper between your fingers. You know, it's just, I don't know, there's something about it. Joan, I see your skepticism, but I'm just telling you, man. There's something about hearing the Bible pages turning. I'm just like, I love it. Somebody go up the app with sound. <laughs> I know, that, right? You, like, shh, shh. <clears throat> Philippians 2, super famous passage, right? <clears throat> it, Last week we referenced Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. He may rework it a few different times. He might have to recreate a few different moments. He might have to work through some things because of choices we make, but he will bring it to completion. And now we get into Philippians chapter 2, and Paul says this, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why should we be working out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Because of verse 13, which says, For it is God who works in you, both, this is two things, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So to harken back to the original question that I sort of posed as we thought through this this morning, if we're, pre- if we're preaching the radical, redemptive, unfaltering grace of God and the hope of our security in his hand, are we opening ourselves up then to creating a dynamic in our church community where we're giving people the sense that they can just live sinful lives because God's just going to keep forgiving them and loving them and everything's going to be cool? And the answer is actually not that we need to 
limit the grace. We need to more properly understand the grace. Because grace does something that the law can never do. The law of God reveals to us our sinfulness, right? It's a thermometer that the doctor sticks in the mouth and says, like, you, you got a temperature, you're sick. The law doesn't make you better. It reveals your condition. It shows you who and what you are in light of the perfect standard of God's word. So the law is good. According to Timothy, it just needs to be used rightly. We don't then try to accomplish righteousness through keeping the law. We simply look at the law and we discover our condition. But what does grace do? Grace does something the law can never do. Grace imparts something new. It gives us that which God intended us to be, which is creatures who desire to obey. He works in us to will, to desire to obey. We see the law not as a burden, but as a blessing. We don't see the rules, if you will, of God's word or the standard of God's word as something to be fought with. We see it as a great blessing and privilege to be able to do. And that is worked in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and I would argue by the potter's hand, if you will, as he shapes in us a desire to do the things that please our Heavenly Father. Grace changes your motivation. If you're truly a child of God, your attitude about sin has begun to change. You don't delight in it. You begin to despise it. You see it for what it is, as an offense to God and a destruction of your own soul, and probably ultimately that which will negatively affect or ruin the lives of those who are near to you. Sin is a great ruin of us all, and so you start to see it for what it truly is. You see its nature. You see how it works in you. And you begin to resist it because that would be what most honors the Lord. So I'm not here to limit grace. I'm here to inform you that grace changes you at the heart level. Something the law could never do. Something religious conformity will never do. You can be a great churchgoer. You can actually get a real Bible with pages. And you can think, I'm so righteous. And you'll be just exactly unchanged. It is the transforming work of God in you, shaping and influencing you. So... To bring it back to the application at the ground level, how does this actually take place? God's working in, the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. You feel conviction. You sense sin in you. You are convicted over a form of speech, a behavior, a pattern of behavior, an attitude, a thought life. Certain things that you know are just wrong. They're buried deep in the closet of your shame. God's bringing those things to light and he's seeking to address them that he might form another vessel here. So then how do we work it out? What's the working out look like? How do you work it out? Does anybody here exercise? We have some exercisers in the room. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to admit that they exercise. It's a positivity thing. Like, it's okay. I know, I know my son Aiden works out a lot. He exercises. Uh, I try. Um, working out literally is just like that. Uh, you don't get stronger sitting on the couch, my friends. You're trying to get, you're trying to get jacked? Trying to, you're trying to put on some match, trying to get ripped, trying to be shredded? Yeah, that's not going to happen with a bag of potato chips sitting on the couch, right? You're trying to lean up. I want to be a little leaner. Yeah, that's not going to happen with just sitting around. Like, this isn't like rocket science. This is like pretty self-evident stuff. So, you, 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 you see the hand of the potter shaping something. You're part of his family. God's working in you. You feel conviction. That is literally the moment of decision right there. 
It could be on a random Wednesday at 2 p.m. And all of us, and like, it's not all of a sudden, your life is happening and the presence of God is with you because he's never going to leave you or forsake you. And his hand is literally upon you and he's shaping you and you are convicted of something or something is brought about. It could be an opportunity that God puts before you and you have the ability to lean into that or to pull away from that. You have the opportunity to, to, to sort of, quote unquote, yield to that and allow that thing to shape you in that moment, or you have the ability to resist that. And that's working it out. Every moment that the God is actively pressing something on you, and you are actively resisting because you're not willing, and that's a heart issue, it's a willingness, I'm not willing, God, I don't want to do that. You're becoming marred in his hand. You understand? And every moment in the simple mundane realities of your day-to-day experience where the presence and the pressure of God's pr- like hand upon you is leading you to something and you yield to that and you say, okay, God, I'll step in that direction as you lead, even if I'm uncomfortable, even if I'm really not super excited about this, even if I think it's going to lead me into much harder conversations or much more difficult circumstances in life, God, I'm willing, you're being shaped. You're working it out. You're becoming more fit in his hand. You understand? So it's sometimes I think we over-mystify the Christian experience. We try to make it super, like, hyper-spiritual. In reality, it boils down to very simple things like just listening and obeying. I mean, how, how many parents would, would love it if the entire home was culture was just a simple culture of listen and obey? I mean, like, that's like the fundamentals. And then how, how, many, how many times is it true in our relationship with our Heavenly Father where, quite frankly, the simple reality is we should just listen and obey. We like to listen and discuss. We like to listen and debate. We like to listen and then seek other ideas. We like to listen and then pause. And if I wait long enough, maybe he'll stop pressing this thing on me and it'll just go away and I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's a classic play at my home, by the way. The whole dad says, and then if we just acknowledge but wait long enough, eventually he'll just do it himself or maybe he'll forget, which does happen. I'm like, I could have swore I told somebody to do this. And then you're just like, I don't know. And then I, then I just wind up doing it. I'm like, I know, I know that they like powwow about this and they like, they scheme this. Like, man, if we wait long enough, if we wait long enough, if you catch him at the right time of night where he usually starts to like lose it, he'll never remember and we'll just get away with it all. But in our relationship with the Lord, we can do that. We can pause. We can drag our feet. We can delay. We, we, we don't want to be totally given over to that which God is working in us because it makes us uncomfortable. It forces us to separate from our sinful behaviors or from our comfortable places of self-pity or self-woe or from those places that we've created where we think everyone's perception of us is good enough that if I'm totally honest about something, the whole shattered image of who I am will come crashing down. I can't afford to let that happen. My reputation's too important for me to be honest and lean into something and truly come apart and separate from it. And so we just continue to persist in a way and we become marred in the potter's hand. Now again, understand, this marring doesn't mean you're forsaken. What it does mean, though, is that you're unfit for service. The light that God intended to shine through your life is dimmed. The witness of the gospel that God intended may be somewhat diminished. These are realities as well. Flip over with me again. We'll keep moving to the right in your Bibles. Uh, go to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2. 
speaking of working out. As God, the potter, is shaping, he's calling us to a reaction. He's saying, look, you continue to persist, I'll have to bring a consequence, but there's a way forward. You don't have to go through this the hard way, so to speak. I wrote 1 Timothy 2, but I think I actually meant 2 Timothy 2. I did. Ha, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 20, it says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You'll notice there's this idea of that which has been created, and then there's this sort of working it out component where the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who was his young disciple, who would ultimately be pastoring churches in Ephesus and other places. And he's saying, hey, Timothy, although you're a preacher, you're still just a Christian. And walking with the Lord, God has shaped and formed you for certain uses. And you can mar the use of your life by clinging to sin. You can mar the usefulness of your life in God's hand by clinging to sin. Notice how he then proceeds. Verse 22, So, therefore, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you'll notice the usefulness of the vessel, that which God has made, the usefulness of it is somewhat limited to or tied to our willingness to not cling to sin, but to let it go as we're convicted of it and yield to God's leading in our life. It's true, and I think we discussed this last week, that the potter was the one who sovereignly knew what he intended to make out of the clay. He had the vision. He had the long-term plan. He knew what he was trying to accomplish. Um, In our lives, I think uh, it's important for us to constantly remember that we have way less control than we think we do. We seek to constantly control our life in every way possible, but it's God who controls. Like Jonah thought he had all the control. And then God's like, here's a fish. Here's a storm. Here's me not giving up on you and constantly trying to bring you to a place where you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Because what Jonah thought was best was actually inferior. Right in the hand of God, willing and obedient is the best place to be. And it's God who ultimately leads us to those things. And so the fittedness, the usefulness, I look in this room, you may think you have already discovered your purpose. Awesome. You may not know what you purpose in the kingdom of heaven is. You may be struggling to find that. That's okay. As we discussed last week, the discovery of God's will is not also a mystical pursuit where you have to be like Aaron Rodgers and go into a darkness retreat. You can actually discover the will of God through simple obedience day by day. You want to know what God has for you? 
be obedient to the first thing he puts on your heart each day. And then be obedient to the next thing. And then obedient to the next thing. And interestingly enough, you'll be what they call walking with God. And then you'll be exactly where God wants you to be. Probably won't be some glorious shining light coming out of the heavens onto a map that gives you an exact location to live. It may be that, but probably not. You may not have a mystical vision. It'll probably come through the simple obedience of cultivating a relationship with your heavenly father and discovering that as you continue to yield to his hand, working it out, leaving sin behind and seeking to walk holy before the Lord, not because you have to, but because you want to, because he's worked in you a new will. And then he empowers you to obey. So if you would, just uh, closing thoughts uh, this morning. Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now Paul wrote um, <clears throat> two letters, obviously, to the Corinthians. That's why we have a 2 Corinthians. But he wrote them a fairly lengthy letter in the first, uh, the first you know, letters, uh, 15 chapters. And then he writes this follow-up letter because there's a lot of concerns that he had about uh, this group of believers. But there's two ideas that I'm going to sort of try to tie together this morning uh, to really bring to, to sort of a, hopefully a full circle of what I'm, I think the Word of God has for us. So 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing again. He's following up with these guys, chapter 6. And he's responding and he's, and he's articulating what motivates his life in ministry. That's chapter 5. And he talks about how in chapter 5, verse 14, it was the love of Christ that constantly compelled him to do everything that he did. He was motivated by and driven by the love of God, the love for God, and then God's love for others, just constantly moving him, everything, right? Verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Then he goes in, and he's now addressing the Corinthians, and he says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, he says, therefore, working together with him. The him in this verse is God. God's working. And Paul is saying, now we're working in concert with or in combination with the Lord. And that's what church leadership is supposed to be doing. Pastors, elders, those in ministry are supposed to be working with the Lord as a component of or as a means to bring about a formation in Christ. Working with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Second letter, he wrote a first one, now he writes a second one. Chapter six, he's like, hey guys, you've received the grace of God, but my concern for you is that you're going to receive it and you're going to receive it in vain. What does that mean? What does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Simply put, it means you receive the grace of God. Perhaps you've come into a relationship with the Lord. Your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. You've been bought by the blood of the lamb. And yet the grace of God is in vain because it doesn't bear fruit. It's not transformational. There's nothing there. There's a resistance to a continual work of God in the heart and in the life. There are those who may be in the kingdom, and yet their life does not bear or reflect the reality of these truths. And Paul's writing to this group of Christians. He's like, I don't want you to receive his grace and receive it in vain, to have it bear no fruit, to never grow, to cultivate, to lead from you know, one life stage to another as you go from glory to glory. So what is the reaction then to this? If you would, interestingly, go with me now to chapter 15, verse 10. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 
That was a trick. You should have known. Second Corinthians doesn't have 15 chapters. Okay. First Corinthians 15:10. Paul speaking of himself. We're going to back up just a little bit. Verse 7. Speaking of Jesus after his resurrection, it says, Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. Verse 9. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You talk about a reclamation project. The apostle Paul was literally persecuting, imprisoning, and seeking the death of Christians. And then Christ transformed his heart and his life, and now he's no longer seeking to kill them. He's seeking to lay his life down for them. And he's like, I am the least of all. I am so unworthy. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what a statement. Church, this morning, we are what we are today in Christ because of his grace. It's his grace. We're here today. Right? You may not be what you ultimately hope to be. You may be still struggling. That's normal. But by the grace of God, we are who we are. I am who I am. And he's still at work. He's not giving up. But notice what he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Why was the grace of God towards Paul not in vain? Well, he answers the question. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He received the grace of God. It wasn't in vain. Why wasn't it in vain? Because he responded every time the pressure of God's hand upon his heart led him to do something. And he worked harder. He leaned in. He was like, God, I'm just going to respond out of a grateful heart. It's not a demand. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. Oh, I have to do this Christian thing or else. It's the will of God being formed in us. God, I want to do this. God, I'm all in. I want to go all the way and just seek you and live for you. Lord, I am so aware of how undeserving I am of your grace. And the gratitude as we meditate on who God is, it fuels a response that is so appropriate. The problem is our understanding of God is so feeble and so anemic and he's so small. We have to find other means of energizing our life. And so we often lean upon self-righteous angles or we look for some shot in the arm. But the reality is if, and we don't have the time, but if you look at Jeremiah's whole message to the children of Israel, it's you have forgotten God. You have forgotten how great he is. You have forgotten that he chose you and pulled you up out of an insignificant little place in Mesopotamia and called you, not because you're great and amazing or awesome, but simply that through you, his great glory could be made known. And so, church, for us today, the order of chapter 18 is so informative for you and I. We have to continue to press in and make and see God, not make him, but to see him for who he truly is how great he truly is, how great and how deep and how abounding his grace truly is. Because when you're motivated by gratitude and by love, it is much more motivating than a sense of duty and law. I have to. I don't, I don't love my wife because I have to. I love my wife because she's awesome. And I want to. And our relationship with our Heavenly Father has to be animated on the same basis. And so that's why we first had to begin with looking at what God is doing and the hope of the gospel and the hand of God upon our life, the fact that God hasn't given up on you or on me, 
We are what we are by the grace of God. And now he's calling us to respond appropriately, which is absolutely in awe that he is even still involved in our life. Paul was like, I'm the worst. I'm the the absolute most depraved of all these guys. These guys are super Christians. I'm totally undeserving to even be mentioned with them. But I'll tell you what, Paul had a deep appreciation for the redeeming love of God. And that love changed him. And so he was so driven because of that love, not to earn God's love, not to earn his favor, but because he had God's love and he had God's favor, he worked harder than everybody. And so, man, this week, guys, for you and for me, all of us, let's lean in. Not because we have to try to go earn God's favor this week or be a better Christian, but because God's great and his grace abounds and he's not giving up on any one of us. And we are what we are and he's still at work in your life. If there's a particular issue of sin, of compromise, or an opportunity you've been backing away from because you're scared or afraid, if God leads you this week and if he may be leading you even now, don't resist. If it's sin, repent. It's the greatest thing that can happen is you can repent of sin. Like you and I can repent of sin. That's amazing. That's a miracle. Even now, even after many, many times of repenting, you can still repent of your sin. If it's an opportunity to serve, it's some good work that God has established for you. He's a good God. He wants to bless you. He's forming in you a vessel fit for his use. He has some kingdom gospel mission that he may want you to fulfill, and it may not get on a poster anywhere. It may be some very small thing reaching out to someone that you, you know is hurting, connecting with someone that you know is lonely, you know, being there for someone who doesn't know Jesus and, and needs to be told the truth of the gospel, whatever it may be, and, and lean into those things. So uh, let's stand together this morning. Uh, let's pray and thank God that he's still uh, active in our lives, and then let's go live it and do it. <clears throat> God, we thank you that we can come to your house. Um, this is just a building. <laughs> the church walked in when we got here. Uh, And Jesus, we're thankful that your hand is upon our lives, not because something in us is so glorious or wonderful necessarily, but God, because you're such a great, good, loving Father. Lord, I pray that the wonder of our salvation would not be lost on us. Lord, I pray like Paul, when he said, I am what I am, by the grace of God. Lord, it's really by your grace that any of us are here this morning. And so we're just so thankful for that. Lord, I pray that a love for you would be more greatly developed in each one of us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you truly more clearly. That God, all the stuff that sort of limits our perspective and really causes us to be distracted, taking our eye off of you. I pray even in these special sacred moments you give us as your people to be together where we pray the world is pushed off to the sideline for a bit so we can see you clearly. Uh, God, that you would use that as the thing that moves us this week. Lord, I pray for each one of us that, Lord, we would respond to your gracious work in our life and work it out. Lord, help us to lean and be obedient. Lord, those little everyday moments and thought action, attitude. Lord, let us be quick to sense your leading. Lord, I pray that you would enable us as you've promised to then do that which you've called us to do. We thank you, God. We thank you for the fellowship of the believer, Lord, as we uh, go our way. I pray that you would um, continue to strengthen and establish the work of our hands for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.